Amen. Amen. Thank you, the musicians. And it is wonderful to see our young people as well uh, giving their, their musical gifts and their talents uh, to, to God. Praise the Lord. Uh, this morning, before we begin our message, I would just want to remind you to keep praying for the group that is in the, in the Boundary Waters. So Pastor Ron and our pastoral staff and parents and students, kids from our school, they've been enjoying this past week wonderful, wonderful um, time in nature in, uh, in Minnesota in the Boundary Waters. So let's pray for them for traveling mercies so that they will have a wonderful experience as they finish their journey uh, today and start their journey home, coming back home tomorrow. And also let's remember our friends, our brothers and sisters in California. Uh, if you have been keeping up with the news, you have seen that there are fires that are happening at this point, at this moment. So let's keep them in prayer. And some of our friends around the world where there are natural disasters as well. It is, it is wonderful, beautiful weather here in southwestern Michigan, and we don't take that for granted. Praise the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before your throne this morning. would like to thank you, my Father, for this wonderful opportunity that you have given us to study your word. We want to ask for your indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit to be upon us so that we can be able to learn, retain, and apply this knowledge in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite uh, quotations in the book, Great Controversy, which gives me so much hope when I look at the Church of God, is found under the chapter, Modern, Modern Day Revivals. It says, before the final visitation of God's judgment upon, upon this planet Earth, there is going to be a revival of primitive godliness among us God's people, such as never was in the apostolic times. So when I look at our church today, though defective and enfeebled as it might be, there is a great promise that God is going to do mighty and great things uh, through his church and through his people. And his church is going to finish strong. Amen? Amen? Praise the Lord. So the message this morning, the title, I have titled The Way of the Lord. And you can see, I kind of gave it away with the picture that is uh, on the screen. We're going to be talking about the sanctuary. Amen? Amen? To some, you might be thinking, oh, I have learned about the sanctuary all my life because I grew up Adventist, in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Or... I, I have known it for, for a long time, but we're going to do something different today. We're going to explore and move in the sanctuary. On each piece of furniture, we are going to renew our commitments to Christ so that our A students that know about these things will be able to get a blessing. But there are some who will be hearing this message for the first time, and I would be calling you to dedicate your life for the first time uh, to, to, to Jesus. So let us turn into our Bibles to the book of Psalm 77, verse 13, where we got this title. Psalm 77, verse 13. The psalmist David says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. I'm going to repeat it one more time. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. So some of you are still opening your Bibles and getting there. It's also on the screen if you want to look at it. So David, if you go back into this chapter, Psalm 77, he's, he's going back and forth. He's, uh, he's worried about his sin. Um, and 
he's thinking what is going to happen to him, what is going to happen to sin, how, how, how things are going to end. And he gets to this verse, verse 13, which gives us an insight into his heart or his understanding. He remembers the sanctuary of the Lord. Of course, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, was still uh, in the form of a tent in the midst of the camp of Israel, in the midst of the, of the whole nation of Israel. This is before Solomon's temple. But he remembers that the only way or the how I'm going to understand God's plan of redemption and be able to find comfort is by going into the sanctuary of the Lord. So David understood that very clearly. Let us take a look at um, another verse here or another passage. Hebrews 4, verse 14 to verse 16. We want to start by establishing why should we study the sanctuary. We've already gotten a point from that verse that the way of the Lord, if we want to understand the way of the Lord, will go into the sanctuary. So Paul says in the book of Hebrews, he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into, into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our, our profession. That's one point. And he goes on to say, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help, uh, to help in time of need. So we see Paul is bringing us to the attention, to our attention, that the reason why, one of the reasons, the reasons why we should study the sanctuary, it is because of the ministration of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, that we know that we have a high priest who was tempted as we are, and he's interceding between us and the Father. So this high priest knows what we go through each and every day, because sometimes when we go through trials and tribulations, it's very easy to think that God does not understand. So we are told by the pen of inspiration that there is no greater test that can be given to humanity than that can exceed the amount of testing and trial that Christ went through. So it says here, let us approach the throne of God boldly, knowing that we have a high priest who is, who is working on our behalf. So because of this reason, we should be able to understand and to study the sanctuary message. Let's see what uh, the spiritual prophecy says here in Great Controversy. Page 488, paragraph 2. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of who? By the people of God. All need a knowledge. How many? All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. So it doesn't say here some people need to understand. It doesn't say your pastors only need to understand the sanctuary. It doesn't say your president of your division conference or general conference or those who work at the offices should be able to understand. It doesn't say the popular speakers in, the Advent, in Adventism need to understand the subject of the sanctuary. It says every single person need to understand the subject of the sanctuary. And now she highlights the two dangers that can happen to you if you don't understand this subject. She says here, otherwise it, is, it will be impossible for them to exercise faith. 
And you remember Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And in the book of Revelation, we're told this is the patience of the saints, those that keep the commandments of, of God. So faith in the coming of the Lord Jesus and faith in him that he will be able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We won't be able to fully understand and to have faith if we don't understand sanctuary. And the other thing, if we don't understand it on ourselves, we are not motivated to share it with others. So we lose our position in sharing the gospel message of Christ. Let's hear what she says here as well. That same page, paragraph three, she says, the sanctuary in heaven, the sanctuary where? The sanctuary in heaven. Our, our, our scripture reading, it, 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 it said it very clear that Paul says, Christ is ministering right now in the sanctuary that is in heaven. We have brethren, not in this congregation at village, but brethren in our denomination in, 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 in time past that have questioned the existence of the heavenly sanctuary. But God made it so clear in the book of Exodus chapter 8, 25, that let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. We're going to talk about it later. That sanctuary, Moses was to take the blueprint from what he had been shown in heaven. So let's read on. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work on behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is of the uttermost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer to everyone that asketh them a reason of the hope that is in them. So why should, we be, why should we be studying the sanctuary? Because it is the center of the redemption of men. And for us to be able to understand the plan of redemption, we should be able to understand the sanctuary. Why should we study the sanctuary? She goes on to say, 423 paragraph one, great controversy. The subject of the sanctuary was the key, was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment in 1844. So let's pause right there. So to some of you, you know, you know well the history of things that transpired in 1844. But to some who may be watching online or here you're hearing it for the first time, you might not know what we're talking about. So just a brief history. A man by the name William Miller in the 1800s was given the interpretation of Daniel 814 unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Which shows you that at the beginning of the Advent movement, the message was centered in the sanctuary because for them to be able to understand, to, to try and understand what the sanctuary and the cleansing, what it meant, they had to understand the subject of the sanctuary. So God revealed the calculations of the times and God gave him the day and the year time explanation and all these events that culminated, that led to them understanding the events that were between 457 BC when the time was supposed to start, the, the, the calculation of time, up to their understanding that Jesus was supposed to come October 22, 1844, of which we know they were mistaken. They were right on the date, but they were mistaken on the event. 
So there was a great disappointment in 1844 because Jesus didn't come. And the people that believed the Advent movement, all those people that were following this message, had a moment where they were discouraged. But God, through his mercy, drew the attention back to where? Back to the sanctuary. And we know from Adventist history that Hiram Edson, whilst he was walking in the cornfield, God revealed to him that, no, 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 Jesus was not supposed to come to this planet Earth because their understanding was the earth was the sanctuary and Jesus would come and purify it and cleanse it with fire. That's his second coming and take his own. But Hiram Edson, when he was walking in that cornfield, God reveals to him that Jesus was going to start a work of the day of atonement, of atoning for the sins of the whole world. The day of atonement, if you break it in pieces, the, that word atonement, it's at one meant. God reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ. So they had so much joy and happiness because God had revealed the great disappointment and unpacked it. So she says here in the book, Great Controversy, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the, of the disappointment of 1844. She goes on to say, it opened the view of a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement, amen? and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. So now, God had given them the explanation of what happened in 1844, but he did not stop there. In the sanctuary, in the message of the sanctuary, that last line, it reveals the position and the work of God's people. You can see, no wonder why Satan fights the message of the sanctuary, because in it we find what we are supposed to be doing right now. Like the sons of Issachar, who knew the time and what the Israelites and God's people ought to be doing in these last days. Letter 208, 1906, paragraph 2, it says, The correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of of our faith. So every single doctrine, everything that we believe, all the 28, all the 28 fundamental beliefs, we can find them in the sanctuary, in the sanctuary message. Everything that we believe, we, we can talk about diet, we can, we, we can talk about Christ's coming, we can talk about tithe and offerings, we can talk about anything. We find it in the sanctuary. It is, it is the center of all our message. It is the center of what we believe. So it is my appeal this morning to Adventism and to you as individuals that we go back to the study of the sanctuary. You remember the tabernacle was in the middle, was in the midst of the camp of Israel. There was no day when an Israelite would pass through the camp and not be able to see the sanctuary. There was no day. But how come we have gone so far removed from the message of the sanctuary that we can think that we can glean truths or any subjects from every other place elsewhere rather than the sanctuary? So Adventism, I want to call you back to the message that God has given us as one of the pillars of our faith that he gave us, a distinct message that he hasn't given to any evangelical a distinct message that he didn't give to any church out there in the Christian realm. 
He gave it to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That shows you that we are a peculiar people, the remnant true church of God. And we shouldn't be apologetic about it. We are the true church of God that God has committed the great truths of saving this planet Earth. Amen. So let's take a brief history of the sanctuary message. You may be thinking in your mind when you hear about the sanctuary and from the picture that I've, I've given, the sanctuary might have started with Moses when he was given this uh, bl blueprint in the mountain. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. Let's read what um, Stephen Haskell says here. This is The Cross and Its Shadow, the book that I, a book that I recommend for you all to be able to grab and read. It's, it's, it's fascinating how he goes through the sanctuary. He says here, before the people of God went into Egypt, their worship was simple. The patriarchs lived near the Lord and did not need any forms or ceremonies to teach them the one grand truth that sin could be atoned for only by the death of one who was sinless. They needed only a raw altar and an innocent lamb to connect their faith with the infinite sin bearer. So what Stephen Haskell is saying here, they didn't need the tabernacle. Their minds and their, their, their experience with God was so sharp that they only needed the altar and the lamb. And they would understand the work that Christ would do by faith in the heavenly sanctuary. So you'll be thinking, Pastor, so what happened? Why did, why did God bring the tabernacle then? He goes on to say, subjected to a life on incessant toil and surrounded by heathen darkness, the children of Israel lost sight of the significance of their simple sacrifices. So right there, you get the reason why. When they were in Egypt all these years, they started losing the significance of their sacrificial system. Is it possible that by beholding, they were becoming changed? Right there, we, we, we pause. The more you spend your time with the things of this world, the more obscure, obscure the truths of God become. The more you spend your time watching Netflix, watching the things of this world, the more all these truths, their significance is erased from your mind. You can still come to church to the sanctuary of the Lord. You can still be involved in ministry. You can still be going on mission trips. But these things can be to your selfish reasons. That's why sometimes you come to the church, not that I justify you not being greeted, but you come to church and you, the church doesn't meet your expectations and you're mad and frustrated. You have lost the reason why you should be coming to church anyway. Askel goes on to say, on account of their servitude, they were deprived of the privilege enjoyed by the ancient patriarchs of spending much time communing with God and they, they drifted very near to the Egyptian idolatry. When God brought them out of Egypt, he proclaimed his law from Sinai and then gave them the same system of worship the patriarchs had, had followed. So God gives them the same system. But God, praise be to God, he goes a step, a step further. Haskell goes on to say, but he had to deal with them as with children because they could not grasp the truth without the simple illustrations, God gave them the system of worship that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had followed. But, going a step further, 
in kindergarten form, just as we would use the kindergarten methods to teach, the to teach children lessons which adults can easily comprehend. Praise be to God, amen? Because God goes a step further. He could have said, you lost what I gave you. You lost this understanding. So you're on your own, figure it out. But God goes a step further. He goes and comes to, their, to where they are, to their level, and says, I'm going to explain to you how this thing works. So you can see the reason why God brought the tabernacle to the children of Israel. Because they had lost, they had lost it. They needed, they needed a more illustration, a deeper illustration for them to be able to what? To be able to understand. Why did God bring the tabernacle? It also says here, I love this, this, uh, this passage. They had drifted so far away that they could not comprehend how God could live with them being invisible. So God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may do what? I may dwell among them. This is another reason why God gave them the sanctuary. Because in their minds, they couldn't understand how in the world could God be among us and yet we cannot see them. And yet we cannot see him. We go to Hebrews. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not not sin. They were supposed to understand that God was with them by faith. But now because their faith had deteriorated so much, they wanted to see tangible things that would show them that God was with them. So the purpose, the reason why God wants you and I to be able to understand the sanctuary is to see a God who wants to be with his people. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with me. How do I know? You might be thinking, Pastor, how do we know? We go to the book of Revelation. At the end of the book of Revelation, it says, he, it says Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, which shows you that's what God is longing for. The tabernacle of God that was being referred to by John in the book of Revelation was Jesus, or is Jesus, who is going to spend eternity with his people among his people. Sin separated us from God. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What was their first reaction? They ran away from God. They hid. And you know God cannot dwell where they sin. So sin removed us from God, and God cannot dwell where there is sin. So there had to be a plan that would reconcile and bridge this gap, which is the plan of salvation which was demonstrated in the sanctuary. So there in the wilderness, the children of Israel would see a God who wanted and who enjoyed being amongst them. And Ellen White tells us that the Shekinah glory did the same. They would see the presence of God every day. And even the cloud that was by day and a pillar by night showed the presence of God every single time. God is wonderful. So let's explore the sanctuary. As I said in the beginning, so that those who know the sanctuary will not, will not be bored, we're going to stop at each and every piece of furniture and rededicate our lives to Jesus, amen? And renew our commitments. So just a brief overview. Uh, the sinner would come and they would bring uh, their lamb and they would confess their sins at the, 
at the altar there, the first altar, and um, the priest would get the blood, the, 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 the sinner himself would kill the lamb, and the priest would get the blood, and the lamb would be burnt. That whole, whole entire thing would point to Jesus, and the laver that is right next to it, before the tabernacle, in between the altar of sacrifice, right there, the priest would wash their, their, their hands and their feet before they go into the tabernacle. And when you go into the tabernacle, there is the first compartment, which is called the holy place, where the ministration of the sanctuary by the priest, they would do services every single day. We're going to talk about the different pieces of the, of the furniture that is in there momentarily. And once a year, on October 22, according to our calendar and the Jewish calendar, on October 22, the high priest would go there and do a process of atonement, cleansing the sanctuary of all the sins that were being sprinkled on the veil every single day. So one more detail, that blood that the priest would get from that lamb, he would go, or from that animal, he would go in the sanctuary and sprinkle it in the veil that is dividing the holy and the most holy place. So you can imagine at the end of the year how filthy and how dirty this, this veil would be. It needed to be cleansed and the whole entire sanctuary would be cleansed and it would be clean. So this is just an overview. So let's go back and now go piece of furniture by piece of furniture and see how all these things can be applied in our lives. The hangings. We find God's instruction on the hangings in Exodus chapter 27, verse 9 to verse 18. We don't have time to read it all, but I give you homework to go and read it at home. The hangings were made of fine linen, which is a representation of the righteousness of God. We find that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, to the Laodicean church, Christ said, I counsel thee to buy of me white raiment that thou mayest be that thou mayest be clothed and you can see that that um, that, that those hangings were kind of a, a, a demarcation a protection if you might say but a demarcation rather between the camp of the Israelites and where the tabernacle uh, would start so you can see that there was a line of distinction between the common and the sacred that was divided by the hangings. And representing the righteousness of Christ, there should be a line of distinction between what we believe and Adventism and the world. Because right now, there are so many things that are encroaching in our faith today as Adventism that are being borrowed from the world. The way we sing, the way, the way we interpret scripture, there should be a demarcation between the sacred and the common. God wants his truth, his church to be pure, to be a light in the world that is not mixed with darkness. So the first thing that you'd see when you come to the sanctuary is a demarcation between the sacred and the common. You would see that this is holy ground. God has given us a line of distinction a line in the sand that we are not the same as the world. We are a peculiar people. Applying it to you and I individually, there should be a line of distinction. There should be a line of peculiarity between what you do and what the world does. You shouldn't go with the flow of the world. You are of a holy priesthood. You are chosen by God to stand for the truth though the heavens fall. When you would get it to the sanctuary, when you would come as a sinner with your lamb, you'd go to the gate. 
The gate was right there. Let's see what the pen of inspiration says about the gate. It says here in the book Desire of Ages 477, paragraph 3, Christ is the what? Uh, I cannot hear you. Christ is the what? Christ is the door to the fold of God. Through this door, all his children from the earliest times have found entrance. All his children have found entrance. So why should we be different? In Jesus, as shown in types, as shadowed in symbols, as manifested in the revelation of the prophets, as unveiled in the lessons given to his disciples, and in the miracles wrought from the sons of, for the sons of men, they have beheld the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And through him they are brought within the fold of his grace. So she makes it very clear that Christ is the door by which we enter into the fold of Christ. There is no other way. You couldn't go around and try to find and try to, to, to poke a hole in the, in the hangings and find your way in. There is only one way, which is Christ. Your relationship with your pastor doesn't get you into the fold. Your knowledge of the people that are in office, whether in co at the conference level, union, division, general conference, doesn't get you into the fold. Not a pope nor a priest gets you into the fold. Only through Jesus Christ can we be accepted in the fold of Jesus. Amen. Says here, Zaf, Ages 477, paragraph 3. Many have come presenting other objects of the faith of the, of the world. Ceremonies and systems have been devised by which men hope to receive justification and peace with God and thus find entrance to his, to his fold. They're trying to find all these different ways. But the only door is Christ and all who have interposed something to take place of Christ all who have tried to enter the fold in some other way are thieves and robbers. So if you're trying to do it the other way, another way, you are a thief and you are a robber. There is only one door, which is, which is Christ. So there by the gate, we find that the door is Christ. Christ, in John 10 verse 9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. That's John 10, verse 9, if you're writing references. From there, we go to the, to the altar. Time is, is, is flying. As I said in the beginning, it will be hard for us to be able to deal with the subject of the sanctuary in 45 minutes, which encompasses the whole entire Bible and all the truths. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to give you a challenge an appetizer so that you can go back home and study these things. Amen? All right, so we get to the altar of sacrifice. We find that in Exodus chapter 27, verse 1 to 8, the instructions. So let's see what the Bible says here. Hebrews, 11 verse, Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 12. But Christ being come, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, which is the, the heavenly one, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Why are we reading this reference? Because we want to see what the altar, what the ministration of the altar means to our faith and to us. 
it points to Jesus. Jesus is the high priest, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9, and Jesus is the sacrifice. That sacrifice, the lamp, the innocent lamp that was slain pointed to Jesus. And that burning of that sacrifice pointed to him taking our position so that he could receive the reward of sin, which was we were supposed to die forever and be destroyed by fire. That lamp was burnt right there to signify that the lamp was being burnt in our behalf. So Christ took our reward and wore it upon himself and died for us and had victory over our reward and gave us eternal life. So there and there at the altar of burnt sacrifice, it points to Jesus, the lamb, and it points to, Je to Jesus, the priest. And we were represented by the sinner who would come and, and slay the lamb. Because you know that the Jewish nation is the one that crucified Jesus. We don't have time to go in deeper, but I want to tell you this subject of the sanctuary, it makes everything clear and it is sweet, my friends, when Christ explains to us the plan of redemption in the sanctuary. So from there, I, I, almost, I almost skipped this, but we've already explained it. You can go to Patrick's and Prophets, page 354, paragraph 2. You can read what, what an impressive scene it was on the altar of sacrifice. We want to go right straight ahead to, to the laver. Right there, the, the priests of God would come and wash themselves there, their hands and their feet, so that they would go in the presence of God clean. So this, as we read in the book of Titus, it says here in Titus chapter 3, verse, verse 3 to verse 5, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, this is before we made Christ, disobedient, deceived, serving different lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, of God, our Savior, to, and love of God, our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So two things from this passage. He spells out the experience that we first got from the altar of bent sacrifice. He says, before, we had all these character traits that belong to Satan and that belong to the world. But now, we have received Christ as our personal savior. Remember, we are going to commit ourselves again to Christ whilst we are moving through the sanctuary. So just remember that evangelistic series. Remember that time a preacher came to your village Remember that time when you sat in the pews for the first time and you heard the message of the gospel impressing upon your heart, God calling you that I'm knocking at the door, will you let me in? And from that series, from that presentation, you chose Christ as your personal savior. You remember that day? Or if you haven't done so, it is my appeal this morning that you may, you may consider choosing Christ as your personal savior. Then, you made a public declaration that I want to go in front of all men as witnesses and go into the baptismal tank or in a river or in a, I don't know where you were, you were baptized or in the ocean or something. You said, I want to go in front of the people and I want to make a public declaration to say I'm starting my walk with Christ and you were baptized. 
So this slaver, according to, 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 to the book of Titus here, Paul is saying this is the washing of regeneration, a public declaration of the experience that has happened on the altar of, on the altar of bent sacrifice. So my friend, probably in your life you have started deviating from the principles of God. You have started being shy about the gospel. You remember Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is power of salvation. You can talk with your family about politics. You can talk with your family about everything, every headline that is happening in this world today. But you know, one thing that you're shy to talk about with your family is the gospel. Now, you're beginning to be shy about being a Seventh-day Adventist either. But you made a public declaration that you are following Christ as your personal savior. So if that has happened in your spiritual walk with Christ, as we contemplate, as we stop at the at the, at, the, at the labor basin, I want you to recommit and rededicate your life to Jesus and remember the day that you gave your life to Christ. My mom and her friends used to sing this song, it was a great day when I was born again. And the lyrics go, I wish I had time to sing for you. It says, the things that I used to do, I do them no more. The places that I used to go, I go them no more. The music that I used to listen, I listen to it no more. The things that I used to eat, I eat them no more because it was a great day when I was born again. You know, there's a problem that we have in our church today of people who say, Pastor, I don't see what's wrong with what I'm doing. You know why? Because Satan has blinded you. You must be like that blind man that said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Christ will open your eyes to see what's wrong with the worldly lust and the things of the world that have encroached in your, in your life. After the labor, after the labor, we see the table of showbread. The table of showbread, you read it in Exodus chapter 25, verse 23 to verse 30. And you would see Christ in John chapter 6, verse 51. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So in John chapter 6, verse 51, Christ says, He is the bread. So the bread there at, at, at the table of showbread was put every Sabbath. Let's contemplate about that. Fresh bread was put every Sabbath. My friends, I want to tell you. It is my prayer that every single Sabbath that you come in the sanctuary of God, you experience a renewal of your faith. You hear and listen to fresh bread and you follow along as you study the word of God, that bread renew your experience with Jesus. It not only pointed to Jesus, but we know that in the whole entire Bible, it talks about Jesus himself. And the psalmist says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So pointing to Jesus, the showbread and the bread that was there pointed also to the Bible, the word of God. Let's rededicate ourselves here. Let's recommit ourselves to the study of the word of God. You remember that time when you were praying for God to bless you in, in your life, different things? You're praying for a family, you're praying for a spouse, you're praying for a child, you're praying for a job. You are claiming the promises from this book. And God gave you those blessings. He gave you that job. And now those blessings have replaced this. 
Because now you're saying, I'm busy with my kids, I'm busy with my job, I'm busy with, my, with, with all the responsibilities that I have, I'm busy managing my money and my resources, and I do not have time for the Word of God. If it is you that I have described, I would like to make an appeal to you that you may start getting back to studying the Word of God because you cannot survive in this world without an anchor of the Word of God. We move from the table of showbread and we go, I'm not going to read all this for, for the sake of time. We go to the candlestick. The candlestick, we find it in Exodus chapter 25, verse 31 to verse 39, and 37, verse 17 to 24. It was a seven-lamp candlestick. That was the only piece of furniture that would bring light into the whole entire sanctuary. And the candlestick is a representation of Christ, because in John chapter 8, verse 12, we find that Christ says, I am the light of the world, he that followeth me shall not walk in what? In darkness. And also we are represented in there because Paul says, it is no longer I that live it, but Christ that lives in who? In me. So Christ wants us to be the lights to the world. Where do we find that? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, ye are the light of the, of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be, cannot be hid. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, talking about the corporate church, it says, The seven candlesticks thou, thou, thou seest are the seven churches. So, three things. The light represents Christ, but Christ wants to show that light to the world through us as individuals and through us as a church. Because this last phase, or this last church, which is the Laodicean church, praise God for the promises, because we are going to buy the gold that is tried in the fire. Amen? And we are going to be restored to our position as the people of the book, and we are going to proclaim the message. That light Christ wants to bring to the world, because the world is in darkness today. There are a lot of people who don't even know about Jesus. Go to, to, to the internet and Google and see how many people groups don't even know and have never heard about Jesus. And we have this message and we take it for granted. God wants us to be the lights. Probably your light is getting dim today. Probably you're running out of oil or something that I need to mention. For the light to be shining in there in, in all those lampstands, in all those uh, lamps, there was oil, which we know that the representation of oil points to the Holy Spirit. There are several passages in the Bible that show us that the oil points to the Holy Spirit. So for you, for your, for your light to shine, it needs the indwelling presence in your life of the Holy Spirit. The book of Isaiah, chapter 60, it says, Darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But I love verse 2. It says, Arise and shine, for thy light has come. You remember, friends, when Jesus, when Jesus, or when, when Moses saw, was in the presence of God in that mountain, when he came down, they couldn't behold his face. Why? Because he was glowing. 
Because he was in the presence of light, God's light. That's the same experience God wants you to have. So that when people see you, they know that you have been with Jesus. You remember the disciples when they were going about their business? People could recognize that these people were disciples of Jesus. How? Because they talked like Jesus, they acted like Jesus, they did things like Jesus. And they said, no, 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 you guys were hanging out with Jesus. So this is the same experience that God wants you to have. He wants you to bring the light to the world and warn the world. We move, we don't have much time. Let's move to the, to the altar of burnt incense. The altar of burnt incense. We find that in Exodus chapter 30, verse 1 to 10, if you're writing refer references. Exodus 30, verse 1 to 10, the altar of incense. So what would happen on the altar of incense? Every morning and every evening, the priest would come and they would put incense. And I just want to highlight this. The coals, the fire that would burn the incense was kindled by God. It was sacred fire. And we know in the experience of the Bible and the, and the Israelites, there were some who offered strange fire. And God had to deal with them. So God wants to separate the sacred from the common. So right there at the altar of incense, we go to the book of Revelation chapter 8, verse 3 to 4. We want to see how can we be able to apply the altar of incense in our lives. It says in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the prophet of God heard the prayers of the saints coming from underneath the altar. And it was mixed with much incense. There, in that passage, we know that the altar of incense points to the prayers of the saints. Has your prayer life dwindled? You know, when I was little, I would hear my mom singing in the morning, that song, Lord, in the morning. You remember it? With, with her high pitch, which was like an alarm clock every morning, though I didn't want to get up from, from, from my blankets. But you know, if you are late five or ten minutes, then you're going to get a spanking. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and he's old, he'll never depart from it. She knew that every morning, if we consecrate ourselves to God, then we have strength to go through the day. Then God will do wonderful, wondrous things through our lives because we are anchored. The prayer is like sweet-smelling savor in front of God's throne. You may be thinking, my prayers don't get answered. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 8. It says, we don't know what we should pray for. But praise be to God, the Holy Spirit, he goes before the throne of God and he groans and he mixes our prayers with incense so that they can be a sweet-smelling savor in front of the, of, of the throne of grace. And God answers the prayers according to what he sees we need and what he sees is best for us. So right there at the altar of incense, we are rededicating our, our prayer life to, to God. Right there on the, on the incense. There's different, all kinds of prayers that are eroding our church and our, and, our, and our Christian faith that come from those people that claim to be Christians, but they have deviated from the things of God. That is strange fire, my friends.
to the law and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, there is no light in them. Don't borrow any types of worship from out there. We have a more sure word of prophecy that we have been given as Seventh-day Adventist Church of God. Let's get back to the sanctuary. Let's get back to the pillars of our faith and proclaim the message and teach all these people how God should be worshipped and not borrow all these things from the world. The music, the types of prayer, all these things, the, the, the strange tongues. Let's not borrow all these things, bringing them into the church of God. We go into the most holy place. We find the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, we find the two tables of stone that were written the Ten Commandments of Christ. I remember one of the visions that Ellen White was given after the great disappointment in eight, uh, around 1844. She was given an opportunity to see Christ ministering in the most holy place. You see the connection here. John, the revelator, was given an opportunity to see Christ ministering in the holy place. How do we know? Because Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he's seen in the midst of the candlesticks, which we find in the holy place. And Ellen White, given the opportunity to see there in the most holy place, she was shown the Ten Commandments. And there was something unique about the Ten Commandments that, that, that she saw in, that, um, in, in the most holy place. She sees the fourth commandment glowing, not because it is the most important commandment and the others don't matter, but this is the commandment which, is, which the Christian church was trampling upon. And it was time for a people to be called out of Babylon, out of darkness, to be the peculiar people that would stand and restore the breach of the fourth commandment. Together with all the commandments, God wanted his people to go back to esteeming the law as it should be. That's why we have this writing on the wall. These are they that keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of who? And they have the testimony of Jesus, a peculiar people. But the commandments of God would only say one thing. I am the mirror. I'm going to show you your faults. And I'm going to tell you that you need to die because you're a sinner. But on top of that, of the Ten Commandments, the covering to this Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was to act in the fulfillment of that verse which the psalmist say, on the cross, justice and mercy kissed each other. Because of the law, the sinner was to die. But because of God's mercy, there was a lamb that was slain in the foundation, before the foundation of this planet earth, which John saw, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the whole world, coming to be baptized, and he pointed out. So God's mercy would be seen also in the most holy place. Praise be to God. And on top of the mercy seat, you find the two angels that are looking towards each other and looking down to the mercy seat without the cherubims, which represent that angels are longing to look into the plan of redemption. It is fascinating. It is going to be the subject that we're going to study for eternity. Angels long to look into these things. You and I are going to be a testimony to the whole entire universe of the plan of redemption and the character of God and his love that extends throughout eternity. Amen. Right there in, the, in, the, in this most holy place, you'd also see the presence of God, and you see the presence of God as well, the Shekinah glory, and you'd see the presence of God uh, in the cloud as well. And you'd also see uh, some other pieces 
uh, of furniture in there, the port of manna, which represents our, uh, the, the health message, God's providence on our, our physical need for food and our spiritual food as well. And you'd also see the road of Aaron that budded because of that dispute that happened. Some people thinking that they can lead the children of Israel. They can be in the place of the chosen one of God. And God said, hey, put their roads in the most holy place. And the one that buds is the one that I have chosen to be my priest. And Aaron's road budded to show that God is the one that chooses the leadership of his people. So we shouldn't be taking the role of those that God has chosen. If God hasn't called you to a certain work, it is not our prerogative to tear it down or to take, to take it into our hands. God, he said in the book of Ezekiel, those who sigh and cry are the ones that are going to be sealed. So if there be anything that the leadership is not doing, if we stand for the truth and preach the truth, we should go a step further in sighing and crying for the abominations that happen in Israel. Amen. There is the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption outlined in the ministration of the sanctuary. As we come to a close, as we come to a close, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, this is where we want to end. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into heavens, into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I believe with all my heart that the time of need is now, my friends. We have a high priest that is in heaven. I believe with all my heart that he's about to finish this work. But the good news is he's there to intercede for you. Now salvation is still open to all. And we need to take advantage of it personally in our own lives, corporately as a church, and also to extend it to others who haven't heard the gospel message of the truth. And I want to call us as Adventists, Adventism, those who are watching online, ministers of the gospel, and us, the laity, that we should go back to the pillars of our faith. One of them is the sanctuary message, where all our doctrines are centered. We used to be called the people of the book, and we need to go back there, where we used to be called the people of the book, because almost everyone in the Advent movement or in the Adventist faith knew how to explain what they believed, and they would give it from the Bible. Now, our people can barely recite the Ten Commandments, can barely put the days of creation in order, can barely give a Bible study from, from, from memory. But ask them about the, the basketball team. They will tell you the number of players, their height, their weight, and how many goals they have scored. They will tell you about the teams that, that, that are playing in the league today. They will tell you about football. They will tell you about all the movies in Hollywood today. They will tell you about all the celebrities and the news that is happening today. But they cannot, they cannot give an answer to what they believe. We should go back to the sanctuary. We should go back to our foundations that we find in the word of God. So if it is your desire this morning, we want to sing... Worthy, worthy is the lamb. If it is your desire this morning to say, Lord, as your coming is very soon and as your work 
is about to end in the most holy place. I want to rededicate my life to you so that I can be a light in this world and so that my experience will, draw, will grow each and every day. If that is your prayer this morning, stand with me as we sing, Worthy, Worthy is the Lamb. Before I pray, probably there's someone who wants to give their life to Jesus for the first time this afternoon. If you're here in the sanctuary, there's a card that is at the back of the pews in front of you. It's a blue and white card that is written connect. Please fill out that information and give it to the deacons when you exit out. You want to start Bible studies? and you want to be ready when Christ comes. If you're watching online, go to our website, villagesda.org, and go to contact us and fill that form, and we'll follow up with you. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the promises that you have given us. Though defective and enfeebled, this church might look Lord, you have given us the promises that there's going to be a revival of primitive godliness. And I want to pray for each and every person that has stood up this, this afternoon in this sanctuary and those who are at home watching online that would like to rededicate their lives to you. And Lord, I want to pray for our church corporately that we may be able to get back to the pillars of our faith, the sanctuary message that explains to us the plan of redemption. Help us, Lord, when we feel tired, when we feel busy, that our strength can be renewed in you, that we may spend time studying your word and in prayer.
and that we may hasten your coming by spreading this message to all the world, then the end will come. We pray that our minds will be stayed upon your things as we go by our way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The song leaders are going to be singing as we be dismissed from the back. May you have a blessed Sabbath. <laughs>